Hi everyone, I'm your host, Daniel Lee, and welcome to OMD Daily, a podcast about investing in people. Every Monday to Friday, I share with you what I learned the day before from studying people and companies through conversations, whether it's through interviewing investors and business leaders, to reading books and financial reports, and digesting learnings from all the other storytelling mediums out there. The goal is to build my own PhD in combining human performance with investing to figure out how I can help leaders build utopian companies. By exploring my own curiosity, I hope to become a little wiser every day and hope this adds a little nugget of learning to you on a daily basis. Hey folks, welcome back to OMD Daily. This is the July 3rd, 2020 episode, and it is a part two of my book review of Maverick by Ricardo Semler. And if you haven't listened to um, part one, I'd highly recommend you do that because it probably won't make sense if you kind of come in in the middle. So part one, I finished off from chapter one to chapter 16. Um... And so, no, chapter 15. So I'll start at chapter 16 onwards to chapter 36. And once again, I'll try to keep it within 30 minutes or so. I try. I feel like an hour-long book review slash uh, conversation about it is already pretty long itself. But like I said before in part one, this is, I think, by far one of the most influential business books that I've read. Um, and it's just a company and person that I admire highly, so... I figured, why not? Let's spend more time on it. So digging right in, um, chapter 16, the key elements here that I want to talk about that I thought were pretty cool is just on the element of transparency. So two quick things. One is that at Semco, um, they made it a, I guess, a policy to publicly show the salaries of all the executives. And Ricardo talks about how it should really be a sign of confidence and pride to show um, everyone that works for you, how much you're getting paid. And in one way, it could be an incentive, but it, in another way, it's more like a way to kind of, um, I guess, if you're actually earning what you should be earning, then you should be prideful of it. And if you aren't, then yeah, then you have a lot of work to do. But that kind of keeps you accountable. And another thing about transparency is that at Semco, they share all the information, financials and business, etc., with their employees. So the idea is that any floor level, so because this is an industrial company, a floor level employee would know just as much about the business as a higher level executive. So to help that, they actually um, worked with the various unions. So this is Brazil and, you know, the late 1900s. So they had unions for most of their blue collar workers, but the executives worked with the unions to teach everyone how to read financial statements so that they can actually understand what a balance sheet is, read cash flow statements, etc. Um, so that the publicly available information is actually fully utilized and people can use it. So I thought this was amazing that they would even take a step forward to do that. And it also just kind of shows you what they actually meant by transparency and how far they were willing to go. Next chapter, um, chapter 17, there's a couple of things few things here i think the key point here is on the profit sharing uh aspect so i'm i'm honestly not sure how common it is the idea of bonuses and profit sharing is in other companies um in every company i've worked for i've had a form of it but i think some do it better than others where the profit sharing is actually meaningful in some instances and it's close to negligent uh just i don't know immaterial like just doesn't even matter if it exists or not in other professions but at semco the way they calculated it is they knew that you know of 
pre-tax profits, 40% would go to tax, and then 25% was supposed to be dividends to shareholders. 12% would be reinvested for the business. That was the minimum capex. And then 23% was then left over for profit sharing that would be distributed to the workers. And similar actually, Ricardo Semler actually thought that 23% was actually high compared to other companies, which tended to be around 8 to 12%. Um, but what he said is, I quote, but I kept telling myself I stood to make at least as much money in partnership with a motivated workforce as I would as the sole beneficiary of the fruits of less inspired workers. Once again, it's just kind of an indication of the kind of mindset he had in just walking through like, why is profit sharing important? Why do you want to share more of your profits instead of kind of reaping the benefits just for yourself? And it's this continuous community aspect, thinking about investing in its own people. And even the way profit sharing worked was unique because um, the workers, so the actual blue-collar workers, just non-executive staff, actually decided how the profit would be distributed. So it wasn't Semler who said, okay, well, you know, employee 128 or, you know, some like employee named, I don't know, Dan Lee is going to make 1% of the total profits. He wasn't responsible for that at all. Um, the workers actually formed their own committees and then they actually set out each quarter how profits would be um, distributed. So this wasn't even done annually. It was done on a quarterly basis. And this allowed the employees to actually be very flexible about the policy and continuously adapt based on need, etc. So if a company fell on hard times, then maybe they don't distribute the payout, um, the profits as much. And they maybe reallocate that to save the company. And this was actually done done um, by the employees. Or sometimes maybe they want to, I don't know, put it out. Maybe they want to have a rainy day fund for all the employees for special events. They could actually work things out. Um, and also, I think one instance was where the committee decided that they would equally share out profits to everyone, regardless of how much their original compensation was. So someone who made 100K would be getting the same share of profit as someone who's getting 10K. And so this was even voted agreeable by the committee, and that's what they would actually do. Once again, just examples of how the company was very unusual in sharing their profits. And I'll actually kind of skip over to chapter 19. And this is one quote I want to read here. Um, the quote is, Fairness is for employees like quality is for customers. It takes years to build up but collapses over a single incident. And end quote. This just reminds me of the Buffett quote of, I think he said, it takes a lifetime to build a reputation and just a single moment to just um, lose all of it. And I think that's extremely applicable in the business world where you're building a company and really all you have as the CEO or even the management team is the trust of your employees. And that translates to the quality of your products. Chapter 20. Um, let's see. Two particular quotes I'll read. First one is, there are so many benefits from job rotation, both for employees and employer, that it's a wonder so few companies encourage it. It obliges people to learn new skills, which makes life interesting for them and makes them more valuable. And I'll... Continue on with the second quote. Truth is, life is pretty dizzying at Simcoe. I'm sure our managers feel less secure than they would at a subsidiary of a large multinational. Park yourself in a job at a huge corporation and play by the rules that are well known to everyone and you'll sleep soundly at night. 
At Semco, managers are likely to be confronted with challenging situations at the time. There's no risk of boredom here. Oh, sorry, challenging situations all the time. There's no risk of boredom here. And so both quotes highlight the key idea that Semco um, job descriptions don't mean anything. And Ricardo had a belief that job descriptions limited people and stopped people from being inspired or innovating. So it was very commonplace for people to continuously rotate and exchange jobs, uh, literally, quote unquote, exchange jobs. So if a salesperson wanted to try accounting, then he'd go to accounting and find someone uh, who wanted to try sales. And the accountant would go and try that sales job, whereas the salesperson would take over the accountant's job. And this would kind of continuously happen. Um, and I think the idea was that people would do this for at least a year and then see from then on what they preferred. If people couldn't even, um, if people, quote unquote, were not considered qualified, um, Semco never let university degrees stop people. And if they needed education, the company would pay for it. If not, it just never was a limiting factor, which I, I emphasized this before in the previous podcast, but it's just astounding how forward thinking they are, where they're not going to limit people by designations or university degrees. Because at least from my experience, what I found is that they really don't add much, I think. Uh, more is learned doing the job than actually studying it in school. I mean, case in point, I got a chartered accountant designation, but I nearly flunked out of audit class. So, you know, very debatable how valuable what you learn in school could be. Um, next chapter, the quote I want to read here in chapter 21 is, you won't find a running, back, a running track, swimming pool, or gym at Semco. Companies build them to help cope with stress. We try not to cause stress in the first place. I think I mentioned in part uh, one of the review about how Semco doesn't have all these outrageous benefits and like Google, for example. And the whole point is that you want to create a place where you don't need any of that. You want to create a place where people don't feel like they need to stay at work, um, where the work actually becomes a home more. So you want to create a place of freedom. And that's a continuous theme that Ricardo um, talks about throughout all the various organization principles he incorporates into the company. Moving on to chapter 22. Um, I'll just talk about this one briefly. There's a there's an idea in Semco where they want to continuously hire, uh, promote and hire within. And I think this is extremely important because you want to continue to develop your own internal talent and let people rise up and get promoted internally instead of continuously going out and finding people from outside the company. Uh, I think this is exceptionally important, especially as people go into higher executive ranks. And that's what I look for in investing as well. But in particular in Semco, they had a program that actually incentivized that. So they had something called the Family Silverware Program where you couldn't bring in, um, sorry, so the family silverware is that they treated the company like a family. And so if you, um, let's say I wanted to, a job that was going to be um, potentially filled externally, I could apply. And the posting would be put external as well. But um, I would only need to meet 70% of the required qualifications. So in essence, I got a 30% discount for being a family. And so I didn't have to prove as much in terms of competence because I was already part of the family. And so this allowed people to continuously move up the ranks in Semco, um, even for positions they might not have been particularly qualified for compared to an external candidate. Moving on, chapter 24 has a couple points. Um, I'll read, I'll start with a quote. 
Oh, actually, no. It'll be easier if I explain the model. So chapter 24 is actually pretty important, I think. Um, the entire chapter talks about the unique org structure at Semco. And the idea is that most companies use a pyramid uh, structure where you have the CEO at the top. But Semco decided to make it a circle. And so they have three layers of circles. So there's the smaller inner one and then the medium one that encompasses it and the wider one outside. And so the... I think in part one, I talked about how Semco has four particular positions that anyone can have. You can either be a counselor, a partner, an associate, or coordinator. Those are the only four positions that are available in the company. And so the inner circle is made up for the counselors that I think make up um, something like six people. And that includes Ricardo Semler. And so these are the executives who just deal with big picture strategy, policy work, and then the second circle that surrounds it are made up by the partners, which are the seven to ten various business unit leaders. This reminds me of the six business units of Constellation Software that um, Mark Leonard has as his kind of, I guess, chiefs of staffs everywhere. These are the people that run the business in Semco, so the, the seven to ten uh, business partners. And then you have the outer circle where everybody else is. And the whole idea is that... Um, the inner circle works for the middle circle and the middle circle is working for the outer circle. And the outer circle is just everyone just working in a cohesive unit and everyone there is called an associate except for individuals who specifically want to be coordinators. And these are kind of more like the managers. But the idea is that um, a manager isn't tied to specifically a set number of associates. Like a manager can work with teams of five to 20 associates in all kinds of projects, and they can work within different business units and they'll continue to traverse around. But the idea is that a coordinator's skill set is specifically in managing and coordinating projects. So if you aren't good at that, you shouldn't be doing it. And I'll, I'll read the quote from Cardo. Associates could earn more than coordinators. No one would feel his paycheck depended on his title. A specialized software engineer who was nevertheless an associate, for instance, could make much more than a coordinator in the engineering department, who in a classically organized company would have the rank of manager and a bigger salary. This seems common sense, but yeah, the idea is that yeah, you shouldn't ever be limited um, in your pay, etc. because of your title. It just seems, I don't know, I just think it's stupid, really, that you have to get more money, you have to be promoted to a manager title, even though you really shouldn't be managing anyone. Um, and you might be more valuable as an individual contributor. I think this is a huge problem in many companies, especially with the pyramid structure, with insane bureaucracy. Um, this was really not the case, I think, at, I would say at my previous um, employer at Moore, which was the investment fund I used to work at. And they actually had a very unique structure where you, know, you could have a portfolio manager make less than a research analyst. And the research analyst was actually, they could have actually more equity in the company as well. Um, and so it, the duties were specifically laid out where you didn't actually have to be a manager um, to make more. Because if you are better suited to be an analyst, you should really just do that. It just seems common sense, but the fact is many companies just make up stupid titles and fake titles, really, to just kind of continuously dangle the carrot. Like, think about it. Associate, senior associate, the manager, then senior manager. Like, what's the whole point of a senior manager or a senior associate? You should really just have associate and then manager. And yeah, it's just, it's a pet peeve of mine, really, when I see all those inflated titles like EVP, SVP, VP, oh God. <laughs> anyway, moving on. Uh, chapter 25, 
so this is particularly about fig when figuring out raises in pay in Semco. So the quote I will read is, we wanted each manager to focus on his role in the company and his value. Um, now, the focus is not to have a negotiation, but to have a discussion to understand where the boss and subordinate are at in mindset and come to an understanding. Then the quote continues, only then did the subject of money come up. Before they told us what they wanted to be paid, we asked them to consider four criteria. What they thought they could make elsewhere, what others with similar responsibilities and skills made at Semco, what friends with similar backgrounds made, and how much money they needed to live. End quote. I think this is just a pretty solid framework to just keep in mind whenever someone you know comes to you asking for a raise. And it's also a very fair way to just work with them and understand why they want to raise, what it means for them. And yeah, just putting it all out on the table. Once again, transparency. Um, I'm just going to skip to some critical points. I'll go to chapter 29. Um I think this was pretty interesting. Um, it's particularly about a specific, I guess, experiment that Semco did. They created this business unit called NTI. I actually forget what it stands for, but it was an internally created program um, where these employees who wanted to be entrepreneurs but didn't want to take the risk, but they had all these ideas, wanted to just spend all their time just cooking up cool ideas and developing new projects. So what Ricardo kind of made a deal with them is they'll form their own company called NTI, or it's a business unit inside Semco, they would all take salary cuts because they're no longer going to be contributing to current revenue generating um, work, but they would still have a salary and they would kind of limit all the downsides of being solo entrepreneur or ind independent entrepreneurs. So, you know, they would have the backing and resources of a large company. They will still be getting paid enough, you know, enough in salary just to make a living so that they don't have to worry about their paycheck or, you know, with keeping a roof over their heads. But then they would have all the pluses of entrepreneurship. They didn't have bosses. They didn't have to report to anyone. They um, made up their own schedules. They could pick whatever they wanted to work on. It's kind of like being an entrepreneur in residence at a VC fund. And I think they did have to kind of showcase what they were working on twice a year just to kind of show progress, et cetera, um, what they were thinking. And various companies actually resulted from the NTI. I think over the years, 12 different, uh, I think, companies or business units formed. Um, oh, sorry, I might be wrong on that. 12 or 24, regardless, a large, a large number was actually formed, I think, um, with the NTI unit. Like I think in the first few years, they, they first created like an environment consulting company, and then that turned into, um, sorry, and then NTI turned into also creating a junior program where they would like hire college grads or something and they would be able to like work in all kinds of departments, like a dozen departments inside Semco for like a full year, trying anything and everything they wanted. Um, yeah, so this was kind of, it's kind of like an internal innovation uh, lab that they created, which I thought was a pretty cool idea to continuously, you know, allow people to be entrepreneurial and think autonomously for themselves and actually have ownership in what they do, which I thought was a pretty fascinating concept. Um, then what else? This isn't particularly about, um, so this is chapter 30. It's not particularly anything about, I'd say, Semco's um, org structure, but it's just a cool quote. So the quote, I'll just kind of read from where it starts to matter. Sem Semler goes, 
Where does persistence end and obsession begin? How high is too high? How big is too big? Of course, some growth is necessary for any business to keep up with competitors and provide new opportunities for its people. But so often, it is power and greed and plain stubbornness that make bigger automatically seem better. End quote. And I just thought this was a lovely quote where it just kind of puts into perspective and, you know, it's just a way, another look into Ricardo's head in terms of how he's thinking about growth and how he's evolved from the beginning of the book where he was very obsessed with it, buying all companies, doing M&A, but now thinking clearly about why you're growing and thinking about um, just stopping and asking himself, why does the company need to grow? What does growth mean? What, and considering the size of the business as well. Um, let's see. Chapter 32 talks about a particular program I found fascinating called the satellite program. Um, and was chapter 32 and 33, I think I would say kind of combine, um, yeah, I think they both combine this idea of the satellite program, if I'm not too mistaken. I'm oh, sorry, 31 to 33 would combine it. They kind of fully talk about this idea of this quote-unquote satellite program. It's yet, so it kind of came out as a need where I think um, when this chapter was written, it was talking about the times when Brazil was hit with a bad economy. Semco wasn't um, you know, spared from the economic downturn. So they had to think about making cuts or continuously, um, yeah, just limiting spend all across the business units. And obviously they have a history of not wanting to lay off people, but they want, so they were trying to strategize and be creative. And one particular idea that came up was a way to help people um, still make a living, but also unburden Semco. So it was very common for large industrial companies to to fully centralize and kind of ver- do the vertical integration thing. But sometimes it doesn't really work out too well. And Ricardo's view was, how about I just continuously outsource everything that um, Semco isn't really quali- the best at doing. So anything someone else can do just as well, then Semco shouldn't be doing. So then the idea was to outsource everything. And he called it horizontalization. And the way that that would also benefit Semco and also his employees during this time of downturn is they could cut costs by outsourcing. Um, But also they would outsource to their own employees. So any employee that wanted to or had an inkling to be an entrepreneur or set up their own shop and run their own business eventually, Semco would actually fire them because when you fired someone, there there were all these great severance packages that Brazil required of people. And so Semco would fire the employee um, and use that severance package to help them set up this entire business. And Semco would become the first client. And the idea was that on the worst case, um, the employee would make, sli- would, less than, would make less than if they were to work at Semco because um, just the sale alone, I believe, of that specific outsourcing component might not be enough to cover the salary. However, with the downturn, um, they might not have had a job at all. So it's not actually that negative if you think about it in the long term. But they have all this upside now because Semco will become their first customer and they will also have a business all set up for them pretty risk-free. And if the economy does turn up better, then they will have a business now that, they, that can capture all the I guess surpluses that come up from a booming economy. So this became called the satellite program where the idea was that 
some code continuously focus on managing its size and kind of keeping a lean operation, but it will continuously pr create these small satellite companies. Um, and I think they created more than 25 companies um, and eventually 50% of Semco's manufacturing was outsourced to all their ex-employee-owned companies. And it's kind of like creating a constellation of your own network um, of people that you trust and they're not really part of the business, but they are partners. And that's also been come a way for Semco to continuously spread the culture that they built to their own kind of partner companies over time. I just thought this was an amazing strategy for growth and it's kind of how a company can reinvent itself and continuously grow while keeping everything pretty lean and actually creating another once again win-win ecosystem with your employees your customers as well as for the company within and just final two chapters um chapter 35 let's see oh i think this is a pretty important quote actually so near the end of the book semco kind of changes his uh, tone to more more or less kind of talk about kind of more of a reflection of the business his life etc and so it becomes a little more philosophical and a little more you know kind of more self-improvement genre but once again I think it's pretty um, impactful so chapter 35 there's one particular quote I want to read it and it goes like this in their depression for quick fixes, too many executives are too quick to jump on the latest managerial fads and fashions as if they will be panaceas for sagging productivity. Quality circles, just-in-time deliveries, Kanban production systems, networking, direct costing, total quality, you'd hear all the buzzwords. Transporting Asian values to, say, Smyrna, Smyrna Tennessee is like wearing a kimono to a Tupperware party. Nothing is less Western than the notion of total loyalty to a company except possibly the belief that age should come before competence. If you must borrow from Japan, don't forget to fill a 747 with enough Japanese to populate your factory. I think this is extreme gold and it just shows how, yeah, like it's there's all these fads and trends out there, especially I think as the world becomes global, people believe like they can just learn anything from what various companies in the world implemented or had in their structure and then just immediately just transpose it into their own company. Um, I think, yeah, like the idea of the, uh, the Kaizen system from, I think that was set up in Toyota, the whole operating efficiency system. Um, I've heard of many executives talk about how they're Kaizen and it makes me wonder, are you really, do you fully understand and comprehend what it actually means? Have you actually visited plants in Japan? Do you actually understand the culture of where everything is so like, it's just the cult. I think Japan also has a culture very similar to South Korea where there's a level of impatience. Um, South Koreans are very aggressive with their, with their impatience. The Japanese are extremely polite about it, but there's still uh, speed is always of the essence in the culture and it's just commonplace. That's why I think there's always huge frustration and more flabbergastedness when people come to the West and they look at DMV lines or just uh, government offices and just see how inefficient employees actually are compared to the counterparts in um, the developed Asian countries. So I think it's just Semco just similar just says it so well where people just think they can just adopt whatever's trendy, whatever's cool. But the idea is that these systems were formed from potentially thousands of years of culture and history that built a mindset um, that was easier for these people to understand. And the I, I think the big 
uh, theme that I want to just convey is that it just always has to happen bottom up. You have to build systems bottom up. You have to continuously assess um, who your people are, who you're serving, what your environment is, what the culture uh, of the people you're hiring are, and build systems that incorporate all that, not just read about random shit in a book and just try to deploy things top down. That just never works long term. Um, And yeah, just quick fixes never last, truly. It was just a very refreshing quote that I wanted to talk about. And it just also just shows how, you know, Semco Semler studied a lot of companies globally. And he didn't deploy random systems that just seemed to work. He built everything bottom up. And that's kind of a full, once again, underlying theme of the book as well. Uh, Now to the final chapter. Chapter 36. Um, what are the key things I want to share here? I'll share a couple quotes, I think. Um, I'll actually share this particular quote. Companies and organizations must be resi- redesigned to let tribes be. They must develop systems based on coexistence, not on some unattainable ideal of harmony. Fixed working hours, organization charts, and policy manuals are also negative. They strip away freedom and give nothing in return but false feeling of discipline and belonging. And then I'm going to follow up with another quote. To survive in modern times, a company must have an organizational structure that accepts change as its basic premise. Its tribal customers thrive and fosters a power that is derived from respect, not rules. In other words, the successful companies will be the ones that put quality of life first. Do this and the rest, quality of product, productivity of workers, profits for all, will follow. And I think this can be summarized as the final quote that I'm going to read. And it's kind of the goal, I think, of this book. And the quote goes, forget socialism, capitalism, just-in-time deliveries, salary surveys, and the rest of it. And to concentrate on building organizations that accomplish the most difficult of all challenges. To make people look forward to coming to work in the morning, end quote. I think that's the goal of the book, really. And I think that should be the goal of every company. Um, I think every successful company that wants to be successful should address the difficult challenge of making a place where people look forward to coming to work in the morning. Um, I think if they focus on that, then all the other big problems would solve themselves over time. That might be a very naive and idealistic way of thinking, but I think it to be true. So... That's probably why I love this book so much. And all right, I think I kept it within around the 30-minute mark as that was my goal. Um, Once again, thanks for tuning in. And I hope this is interesting. I hope this is enough for you to pick up the book and read it yourself. I highly recommend it. Um, And yeah, like I'm not affiliated. I'm not getting paid. I don't even have an Amazon Associates like affiliate link set up. So just find it yourself and (laughs) buy it and read it. yeah, and if you want to read more about all the other notes I took that I didn't, I couldn't share that would have probably made it into like a four-hour podcast, uh, go to OMD Ventures and you can read all the things I took notes of and that might give you a better idea of whether you want to read the book or not. All right, thanks for tuning in and take care.